see, this is something that I think if you've had eyes to see and ears to hear and you've been looking at what is going on in our world, you would probably understand that uh, people just need to grow up. Like we've got adults in this nation that are, they're not as well behaved as most toddlers. I mean, it's just like they're acting up all the time. They're saying stupid things because they're not even thinking with their stupid minds. And I'm going to keep calling them stupid people because stupid is really like those that know better and choose not to do it anyways. And that's what this world is. It's full of stupid people. And yes, that's one of my favorite lines from a song. Everybody knows that the world is full of stupid people. I think what everybody does not realize is that the church is equally full of stupid people. Stupid people that need to grow up. You see, one of the things that we are, as Christians are to become is mature. Maturity would mean that you're no longer stupid. You should no longer be ignorant. You should be, you know, kind of full grown, you would think. But I look at the church and I just don't see that. I don't see a spiritual maturity. I don't see Christians actually growing up. I see them wanting to remain infants or babies or spiritual toddlers because growing up usually comes with some growing pains and we don't like that. We don't want to become mature. We want everybody to take care of everything for us. And then we want to try to claim that we just don't know any better. But the fact is, Christians know a lot. We know a lot about God, and yet we're still immature. I mean, the sad reality is that most Christians are educated far beyond their maturity. And here's what I want you to get. When we're talking about spiritual maturity, spiritual maturity is not about how much you know it's about how much you obey. Spiritual maturity is about how much we obey. Just a couple random things. You've heard that statistic about like the divorce rate, right? Divorce rate in America for Christians and non-Christians is about the same. And while yes, that is kind of true, it doesn't really paint the whole picture. You'll hear a lot of different organizations that go in and they actually study that further to figure things out. And so what I want to do is I want to show you like two different types of Christians. We'll call this active Christians and non-active Christians. And the dividing line between active Christians and non-active Christians, there are 52 weeks out of the year the active Christians become the ones that at least attend church 27 weeks out of the year, which would be one more than half. That's the active Christians. See, in America, the average divorce rate kind of hovers around 50%. Basically, half of all divorces or half of all marriages are going to end in divorce. However, if you are an active Christian, that rate, that divorce rate, is anywhere between 30 and 50% lower 
than what regular Christian or regular world is. However, if you're not the active Christian and you're the non-active Christian, your divorce rate is actually 20% higher. So when we take all Christians, non or non-active Christians and the active Christians, that's where you find the divorce rate is about the same. I guess we could also instead of calling them active and non-active Christians, we could call them obedient Christians and disobedient Christians. And I say that because Scripture is pretty clear that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We're supposed to be meeting on a regular basis with one another. That's one of those things that we can obey. Now let's look at not marriages, let's look at giving, okay? Charitability. Kind of a hallmark of Christianity, right? Yeah, so uh, when it comes to the non-Christians, non-Christian households, 50% of them are defined as being charitable, and they are giving to causes. And we're not even talking about church giving. We're talking about secular giving, outside of the giving, helping to feed the poor, giving to food pantries. You know, when you're going to the grocery store and they're like, hey, would you like to round up for this thing? That type of charitability is what they're looking at in this. Non-Christians, 50% of households. The non-active Christians or the disobedient Christians, it's 50% of the households versus the active Christians, it's 65%. So when we look at just these two scenarios of our giving and our marriages, what we find is that the non-active Christians don't really look a whole lot different on the outside than non-Christians And that leads me to think if there is uh, nothing different on the outside, is there anything different on the inside? I mean, think about the things that we do. Think about farming, planting, gardening. You put that seed inside. And after it has been nurtured, after it has been tended to, well, what happens? Something grows on the outside, and then it's evident what was on the inside. But if nothing was actually planted there, will anything actually grow there? And we know that with non-Christians, nothing was planted there. So what we don't see growing in the non-Christians is what we don't see growing in the non-active Christians. If there's nothing different on the outside, is there anything different on the inside? See, this is why spiritual maturity isn't about knowledge. It's about obedience. It's about doing what God has said to do. The other thing that I don't think that we realize is that disobedience is sin. We want to look at those as two separate things. I mean, they're two different words after all. One's got three letters, one's got more. 
They're two different things. This can't be the same. But that's not even what the Bible shows us. I want you to look at this out of Romans 5.19. Romans 5.19, it says that for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Disobedience made the sinners. Disobedience makes sin. By one man's sin, many became sinners. By one man's disobedience, many became sinners. And then the flip side is also by one man's obedience, many are then becoming righteous. This is looking at the first Adam and the second Adam. It's looking at Adam from Adam and Eve, and then Jesus, who was known as the second Adam. Adam disobeyed, we all became sinners. Jesus obeys, we put our faith in him, we all become righteous. That's what Paul's talking about here to the Roman church. He's laying out the fact that sin is disobedience. So when it comes to our spiritual maturity, this is a disobedience issue. It becomes an obedience issue. It becomes a sin issue. And so today in this message about grow up, what I want to talk about is our sin issue. And yes, I'm talking about Christians and our sin issue. And I know I'm from that Word of Faith camp and we love to just quote uh, 2 Corinthians, what is it, 5.17 if I remember right, that you know, old things have passed away, I'm a new creation. And so what we like to say is that I'm not a sinner anymore. But that's not really true. In one sense it is, but in another sense it's not. And here's what I want to show you. 1 John 1.8. Turn with me to 1 John 1.8. I want you to see it in your Bibles. I want you to have it in your hands. I want you to flip through your device and catch this. 1 John. 1 John. This book. This book of 1 John. This is written to believers. This is written to Christians. This is the book that John is talking about. Hey, brethren. Hey, my brothers. Hey, my sisters. Let me tell you something. And what he tells us here in 1 John 1.8 is that if we, he, he didn't say, oh, if you, the non-believers, if you, the sinners out there, if you, the, the non-Christians. No, he's like we. He's including himself in this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're lying to ourselves. The truth is not in us. The truth is not in us. The, the sad, here's this reality that we need to understand. We are three-part beings, just as God is a three-part being. Spirit, soul, and body. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We are three-part beings, when we are in Christ Jesus, the old thing that has passed away and what has now become new is not our body. And it's not our mind, which would be our soul. It is our spirit has become new. The spirit no longer has sin in it, but this flesh has sin. And this mind has sin. We think 
the wrong things. We do the wrong things. It's this paradox. There's a big word. The paradox that the Apostle Paul wrestled with in Romans. That which I want to do, I don't do. And that which I do, I don't want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. We are saved. We are righteous, but we are sinners. We are. We try to lie to ourselves. We try to sit there and say, ah, well, I'm a good person. We're saying the exact same thing that the non-believers of the world are saying. You know what separates Christians from non-Christians? We understand that we are sinners who need a Savior. They don't. You want to know what separates active Christians and non-active Christians? We active Christians understand that we're sinners and we still need a Savior. The non-active Christians, nah. Grace. It doesn't really matter what I do. I can keep sinning. His grace covers it all. I'm saved. I'm righteous. I'm good to go. After all, sin is sin. All sin is the same. And he's paid the price for all sin, past, present, future. So what does it matter what I do? I can keep doing what I want. And by the way, because I've already sinned so much, what's one more sin to add to this? I've been in pastoral ministry long enough that I've seen Christians, professing Christians, say the exact same things that the non-Christians say. And yet they think that they're different. They think that there is something on the inside that is different when what is on the outside says, no, it's not. It says it's not. If we will not see ourselves as sinners, as sinners we will not see our need for a Savior. If we think that everything is all right, we'll never see a problem. There's a quote from uh, this guy, I think if I remember his right, name right, it's uh, Abraham Maslow. And he said, if the only tool that you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. If the only way we see ourselves is as saved, every problem we see that Jesus has already solved. And there's nothing left for us to do. And that is not spiritual maturity. It is not spiritual maturity. Sure, it's, it's absolutely true that we are not saved by our works. However, we also see what the Apostle Paul tells us. And he says, hey, actually, or it might have been James, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Where he says, you show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You see, what happens with our faith in Christ is if it is a true faith, if it is sincere and it's really in this inside of us, it has to come to the outside. Our works will show where our faith is at. Our obedience will show where our faith is at. Our disobedience will show where our faith is not. We have to be able to at least see ourselves as sinners. 
We have to let the truth inside and say, this flesh, it wants to sin. It has not been renewed. And this mind, it wants to sin until after it's been renewed. And that renewal is a continual process. Sure, my heart, my spirit has been made new, but that's only one of the three parts that I am. And I need help for that spirit to be able to overcome what the flesh and the mind desires. I need a savior. I have to recognize that there is still sin inside me and that I am prone to that sin. And if I don't recognize that, I'll never cry out to that savior. Now, this is a delicate balance for us to acknowledge that we're saved, but yet we're prone to sin. It's a delicate balance. Because if we just say, ah, I'm a poor sinner and I'll never do anything right, then we deny what Christ's power truly is. But if we will only acknowledge that we're saved and we have no tendency towards sin, then we deny our role in this life of salvation. We have to, we have to monitor that. We have to see that. We have to acknowledge that. We have to understand that without Him, we're pathetic. We're worthless. We are wretched sinners. With him, we're redeemed. We're righteous. And we can overcome sin because he has overcome sin. We can't think that we've got it all together. We can't. We're not perfect yet. We're maturing, but we're not mature yet. We're getting there, but we haven't gotten there. Our ways, if, if it's left up to us, Isaiah paints this horrific picture. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. We are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness, all of the right things that we think we do, oh, I'm a good person. No, all of that are like filthy rags. And I'm just going to tell you right now, that, that filthy rags... This is very descriptive. Those are the rags that women used at the end of their menstrual cycle. That's the filthy rags. In other words, what Isaiah was saying is, your good deeds, they nasty. It's disgusting. See, when we compare ourselves to each other, if I compare myself to you, oh man, I'm, I'm good. If you compare yourself to the rest of the world, oh, you're good. If we all will compare ourselves to God, we're nasty. He's holy. He's never made a mistake. This is what we need to keep that fresh perspective because that leads us to a place of continual obedience. Understanding what I'm doing on my own is not the right thing. It's not even a good thing. It's a disgusting thing. I need to do what God has told me to do because that's the only good thing. That's the only good thing. We even look at those statistics that I gave you. The statistics I gave you. We're active Christians, the obedient Christians. 30 to 50% better than the divorce rate. And hey, just a pat on the back for Iowa. Iowa has the lowest divorce rate in the entire nation. So, come on. We're, we're doing good. But the fact that God created marriage 
to never be separated, to never go through a divorce. If there is one, then we've done it wrong. We can look at our giving and say, hey, it's great that active Christians, 65% of households are giving. But if it's not 100, then it's not like Jesus. And we, as Christians, are not mature. We still have a long way to go. But we want to say, ah, well, I mean, yeah, everybody sins, but I'm still a good person. And that's because we have this, this false notion that all sin is created equal. Maybe I should say all sin is committed equal. That sin is sin. That it's all the same. Yeah, not really. Not really. See, there's a lot of different things about sin. There's a lot of different things about what our obedience and our disobedience, our sin or our righteousness will influence. Our obedience will influence the rewards that we have in heaven. Our disobedience will affect the punishment that we get in hell. Yes, hell is real, and there are varying degrees of punishment in hell depending on the sins you've committed. Oh, and it will also affect the consequences we have on earth. All sin is not created equal. Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, Verse 48 through, or 47, 48. The servant who knows his master's will and did not prepare himself to do according to his will shall be beaten with, what does that say? Many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed the things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. Few for the ignorant, many for the stupid. The people that know better and still don't do it. I don't know about you, I don't want to be stupid because I don't want to be beaten many times. Now, Jesus goes on. Luke chapter 20, verse 46, 47. Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, Love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogues, the best places at the feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. So in other words, the ones who are in a position of spiritual authority, yeah, that would be me, I do the wrong thing, greater condemnation comes upon me. Why? Because I'm not just held guilty for what I say and what I do, but I'm also held guilty for what others hear and how they respond to what I've said. Let me put it this way. I committed a sin this morning. It's one I still need to repent of. It's one I struggle with all the time. I can't find book, chapter, verse in here where it describes this exact sin, but there is a section that covers it where it talks about obeying the laws of the land. Now, the law of the land is that there's this speed limit. That means it's a limit. A, a limit means you don't go beyond it. 
The sign said speed limit 55. My cruise control said 59. That means I broke that law. That means I sinned. Now, I broke that law and I sinned, and it's not a good thing to do. And here in a little bit, I will repent of that sin, and I will ask God to forgive me and then to help me so that I no longer commit that sin. But I understand that there is something in this flesh that's in this area that is just prone to getting heavy and helping me sin that way. Now, my spirit doesn't want to do it, but my, my flesh definitely wants to do it. And my mind keeps thinking, well, you can't be late, so you need to hurry. My mind needs renewed. My foot needs to obey. This was a sin. Does this sin disqualify me from standing up here and being your pastor? No. However, if I decided that I was going to drain the church's finances, sell off this building, take off to a foreign country, and start like, I don't know, a nude co-ed skydiving community, not only would that be nasty, I would then no longer be qualified to be your pastor. Probably no longer be qualified to be a husband. You see, there are scriptures that cover what the qualifications for pastoral ministry are. I, I didn't see speed limit in there, although I'm sure somebody will twist and manipulate that and be like, uh, it says you're supposed to be holy, and that's not very holy. Which, by them even making that statement, proves that they're not holy and they're also hypocrites, which means they're not even deserving to pass judgment on me. But what I'm trying to get this point across is that sin is not all equal. Some sin is greater than other sin. The time when sin becomes equal is how all sin, big or small, knowing or unknowing, will separate us from God. Any amount of sin separates us from God. And that's the only place that that sin then becomes equal. But in every other aspect, our rewards in heaven, the punishment in hell, the consequences here on earth, there are varying degrees to this. We can't feed ourselves this lie that, ah, I'm, I'm a good person. No, the only good that I have in me is Christ who is in me. Without Him, I'm a wretched human being. With Him, I am redeemed. And no, not all sin is the same. It's not all the same. And we then can't also feed into this lie that, oh, well, we've already done so much sinning. I mean, I already put my foot down on the pedal and I already sped on the way to the church, so I've sinned for the day. Why not go ahead and sin on my way back to Osceola this afternoon? I mean, what's one more going to hurt? No, the continual sin and that thought process, which is stinking thinking and it's a bad thought process, leads to continual disobedience. And then that becomes this habit that becomes so overwhelming for us. It becomes so overwhelming to the point that we actually do more harm than good. 
you're, you're still in 1 John, correct? Okay. You should be on the first page of 1 John if you've got a paper book. I want you to turn back like two pages to 2 Peter chapter 2. And I want you to look here at verse 20. And I, I don't need you to gasp out. I don't need any show of hands of amen, I feel that. But I venture to say there are going to be many of us, if not all of us, that will relate at some point to this. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. If you have come to a saving knowledge through Jesus Christ, you've given your life to Him, but over this course of time, you start to get entangled again with the sins that kept you from Him in the first place. And then you become overcome by them. You're now in a position that was worse than when you started. You're now in a position that is worse than before you even knew Him. Something that I have come to learn as a sad reality and commentary on Christianity is that the most miserable people in the world are not non-Christians, but they are Christians that are now living in sin. They're the most miserable people in the world. They're the most hateful and hurtful people in the world. That whole thing, misery loves company, I guarantee it came out of a Christian living in sin. Everybody's looking at him and be like, eh, you want us to be with you. I see this over and over again. And this comes from this lack of maturity that we have. Sure, they know books of the Bible. They can recite the scripture. They've got it all up here in that same mind that has not been renewed. All it's done is accumulate knowledge, but the mind will not obey what that knowledge tells it to do. And instead they go back. And then they're worse off. They're worse off. And they think, ah, oh, I'll be fine. It'll be fine. No, it won't be fine. James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 it says, each one, when they are tempted, is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. They are not okay. These miserable Christians living in sin are not okay. They're worse off than when they weren't even Christians. And that should bother us. That should grieve us, especially when they're loved ones of ours. Acknowledging the fact they're worse off right now. They're not doing good. They're not better. They're facing death. They're facing death because now what we see on the outside has to then question what is even on the inside and is there anything left on the inside? I don't know. I don't know, but it's a worrying thought. It's a troublesome thought. 
It's an extremely troubling thought. And I know that here is Jesus looking down on his church, looking down on those who once professed him as their Lord and Savior, but who are now acting like they never did that. Who are now living in sin, living in disobedience, oftentimes worse than the unbelieving world, the non-Christians out there. And it's breaking Jesus' heart. He's looking at them and he's thinking, Grow up. Grow up. Stop acting like a spoiled, rotten, selfish child. I gave you everything and you're spitting in my face. I've told you how to overcome this world and you're rejecting me? All you're doing is using me to make you feel better? He's telling him to wake up. I know he's telling him to wake up because I've read him telling the world to wake up. I've read him telling the church to wake up. He says it in Revelations 3.19. Look at this. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Repent. Turn away from your wicked ways. Stop disobeying. Start obeying. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to repent. He loves us. The church is struggling with this. The church is struggling with this because I'm out there in the world and I'm looking at the world and I'm talking to the world and every single day I am confronted with somebody who is a professing Christian that has... No idea how to behave like one. And it bothers me because there was a time when I was early in my walk with Christ that somebody looked at me right after I told them, yeah, I'm a Christian. I gave my life to Christ. And their reply was, <laughs> never would have guessed. It made me check myself because they saw nothing on the outside that looked like Christ. They saw nothing different than what the rest of the world has. And I'm looking at all of Christianity and I'm saying, man, the majority of Christians look just like the rest of the world, act just like the rest of the world, sin just like the rest of the world disobey just like the rest of the world. And I grew up hearing if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it waddles like a duck, it's not a goose. If it looks like an unrepentant sinner, if it acts like a disobedient child, if it behaves like one who lives for themselves and not for God. Why do we think it's a Christian? We've got to grow up. We've got to do better. And yeah, 1 John 1.8, we started there. You can flip back there and look at it. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. 
We can change that and we can say, if you don't like the word sin and you don't want to call yourself a sinner, that's fine. Change that and just say, if we say that we do not disobey, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. And if we just left it right there, man, (laughs) what hope is there? But fortunately, John didn't end there because in the very next verse, in 1 John 1, 9, he says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can't say that we don't have it. We must confess it. We must acknowledge it. Because upon that confession and upon that acknowledgement, He is faithful. He is just to forgive us. But it's not just about forgiving us. It's cleansing us from the unrighteousness. And He not just wants to cleanse any spot that we are trying to put back on that spirit. He's wanting to cleanse us from the blemishes that are in our mind. From the spots that are in this flesh. He wants to cleanse our entire being from the unrighteousness. He wants us to stop being disobedient and start being obedient. He wants us to grow up. And it starts with that confession. The reason we need that confession is because we have to acknowledge that we have missed it. We're not as good as we think we are. We're only as good as Jesus is. And it's because of Him that we're that good. It's not because of us. We have to acknowledge our shortcomings. Confession really is good for that soul, that mind. Because our minds deceive ourselves when we say that we don't have it. That's why I have no problem saying, guess what? I sinned this morning. I was speeding. I did it. Lord, help me to stop. What am I in such a hurry for? And I've done it every week. I remember last week, I go speeding past Bart on the way back over there. I don't even think he knew. Come flying up behind him. I've done it other Sunday mornings on the way to church. I didn't need an acknowledgement out of you, even though I do zip past you. (laughs) But see, the, the world sees us doing this. Other Christians see us doing this. And what, we think we're going to hide it? We think we can hide it from God? We think we can hide it from others? Why are we trying to hide it from ourselves? Just get it out there. I've sinned. We confess it. He is faithful. He is just. He forgives us. He cleanses us. And He shows us how to sin no more. When we will sin no more, we disobey no more. We become obedient. And when we become obedient, we grow up and we become spiritually mature. That's what we need. We need to be mature. We need to grow up. And we need to do what God has called us to do. Let's pray.